Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the February 2024 meeting of the Whitechapel Society here in the Crutchfriar pub in the heart of London's East End in Allgate. And as always, I'd like to welcome all of you who are listening in to us through the excellent Rippercast podcast. Now, the speaker that we did have planned for tonight was Philip Davis, and he was going to address us on Michael Maybrick, who is Ripper suspect James Maybrick's brother, and his links to Freemasonry. Now, as you're all aware, we are crippled by train strikes at the moment, and so he was unable to get down from Liverpool. So we are delighted that Sue Parry, our own Sue Parry, has stepped into the breach and is going to be giving us a talk on the trial of the detectives. Now, Sue needs very little introduction from me. She's well known to all members of the Whitechapel Society. She's a retired deputy head teacher, and while mathematics was her subject, history became her passion. Now, she's no stranger to public speaking. In September 2022, she addressed a, pa a packed gathering at Chris Jones's book launch. Uh, Chris Jones wrote an excellent book on James Maybrick and the Jack the Ripper diary. It's a terrific book. If you haven't got it, it's well worth having it. And Sue did a terrific talk on a gentleman called Valentine Blake, who supposedly supplied James Maybrick with a vast amount of arsenic in January 1889. And of course, for those of you that were on the East End Conference last year, you'd have seen Sue gave a terrific talk about Sergeant Bryant, and he was one of the officers who was injured in the Houndsditch murder scandal. And she gave a terrific presentation, not just about the event, but also about what happened to Sergeant Bryant afterwards. Now, that is available on the Ripper Cows podcast, and it's well worth a listen. So in 1877 a scandal rocked Scotland Yard as it learned that its officers within the department were corrupt, taking bribes and aiding criminals. Inspector John Micklejohn and three other Scotland Yard officers were arrested and tried for conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. The incident had a profound impact on the question of accountability within the detective department and severely dented the public's opinion of the newfound police force. Tonight, Sue will take us through the details of the shocking incident and discuss what happened to the major players after the trial. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sue Barry. I think before I start, I'd just like to know, is anybody a retired police officer or still acting as a police officer? No, no. Anybody related to a police officer? Yeah. Okay. I always think it helps to know who you're about to insult before you... <laughs> before you start, but I know Doreen's on my side. <laughs> yeah. Right, well, thanks very much for the introduction. As I say, we had booked Philip Davis to come down and speak to us today about Michael Maybrick, but train strikes have prevented him from getting here. But he, he will be with us, I, I think possibly in August, but certainly later on in the year. So I'm going to talk to you about the trial of the detectives. It was also called uh, the turf, not turf, the turf fraud scandal. And as Tony said, all of this was going on in 1877. Okay, so for many Britons, centralised policing was equated with government government tyranny and espionage. So when the Metropolitan Police was established, as you know, in 1829, there was no detective branch. Okay? It was only what we would have called a uniform branch. Uh, the underlying mandate uh, was the prevention of crime uh, rather than investigation and prosecution. Nothing wrong with that, but, it, but, but they just weren't skilled in inve investigation and prosecution. But there was 
one event in 1842, a very grisly murder, which was the last in a series of failed police investigations that finally actually brought about change. So let me tell you a little bit about that. So there we are. There we have some very early Metropolitan Police officers there looking very splendid in their uniforms and their wonderful hats. Love those hats. Okay, so let me tell you about... 1842. In early April of that year, a man called Daniel Good murdered his common-law wife, uh, a lady called Jane Jones. And following the murder, he dismembered the body and attempted to burn her remains. And for a day or so, he seemed to have committed the perfect crime. Now, his fatal mistake, which I'm sure he probably recognised in hindsight, was that what he did after that, <laughs> which pales into insignificance, he stole a pair of trousers from a pawnbroker in Wandsworth High Street. The pawnbroker noticed the theft and sent a constable, uh, a PC gardener, after good to search his home for the missing article. He actually recognised the man that took these trousers and just told a policeman about it. Now, the policeman went along to the stable where Good lived because he was a coachman and he began a search in the presence of Good himself and this revealed beneath some hay not the missing trousers but a limbless, headless female human torso. So this poor policeman <laughs> got far more than he was reckoning uh, and at the moment of the discovery Good ran out of the stable door, locked it behind him, leaving the hapless policeman trapped inside. By the time he managed to break out and raise the alarm, uh, Daniel Good had fled. Uh, Daniel Good was at large for 10 days before his recapture. Now, during that period, the Metropolitan Police frantically searched for him. They searched Jane Jones's house, questioned Good's son and his mother, and they went to his favourite London haunts. But it was, they were always one step behind this man. It transpired that Good had fled to Tunbridge in Kent. That's where he went, and he was posing as a bricklayer. And by sheer luck, a former police constable from Wandsworth recognised him after reading about the murder in the local newspaper. He reported Good's whereabouts to the local police and shortly thereafter, Good was apprehended, placed in Maidstone Jail, escorted back to London, tried, convicted for the murder of Jane Jones and was executed at Newgate on the 23rd of May, 1841. Um, it never ceases to amaze me how this uh, enterprising ex-policeman was able to recognise the man that the police were looking for, because that's what he worked on. There we are. That's what the Metropolitan Police put out in April 1842. So notice, murder, a warrant has been granted for the apprehension of Daniel Good. And what I love is the uh, description of Daniel Good. I don't know if you can see it from there. He's an Irishman, aged about 46 years, five foot six inches high, very dark complexion, black hair, long features, not quite sure what that means, and bald at the top of the head. That was probably the giveaway. And he walks upright. Well, I would hope he did walk upright, wouldn't walk on all fours, would he? Uh, was dressed in a dark great coat, drab breeches and gaiters, and he has a black hat. And from that description, this uh, former police officer recognised him. So anyway, we have uh, 
this murderer who, who's now been tried and executed. Uh, now, this incident uh, was a serious embarrassment to the police. Not only had they allowed a murder suspect to escape, um, and if you remember that there was a police officer who was locked in a barn, couldn't get out, goods fled, uh, but Good was, Good was only actually recaptured thanks to the vigilance of a civilian and not a serving police officer. Now, the police, uh, so there we are, and, and there's something that will have appeared uh, in local broadsheets. Now, the, pre uh, the press had an absolute field day over this, uh, berating the police for their incompetence in criminal investigation. Uh, and it was a criticism that the Home Office and the Metropolitan Police Commissioners actually did take to heart. Shortly after Good's execution, a small detective force was set up within the Metropolitan Police. And it consisted of two inspectors and six sergeants. And several of those uh, sergeants had been involved in tracking Daniel Good. Uh, so they weren't necessarily that good. Uh, and this new detective department represented the first centralised detective force in England. And it lasted from 1842, from the time of the uh, Good murder, right up until 1878. And I'll explain the significance of that date, 1878, uh, a little later on. So, the life of the Metropolitan Police, it didn't run actually that smoothly. Most notably in 1863, 215 police officers were arrested for being intoxicated while on duty. Now, I'm not suggesting they all went to the same party and got totally hammered on the same night, but over the course of that one year, uh, 1863, 215 police officers uh, were intoxicated while on duty. Uh, and then things really, in a sense, got a little bit worse. In 1872, 100 80 men from actually D Division, E Division and T Division uh, of the Metropolitan Police, they actually went on strike uh, on the 16th of November uh, and the, the strike was held in protest at the dismissal of PC Henry Goodchild who'd acted as a secretary coordinating meetings amongst police who were demanding improvements over pay and conditions. And it does have to be said that uh, police pay and their conditions was pretty grim, uh, was not good. Uh, and it was considered the first strike by police in the United Kingdom. Now the strike actually only lasted a couple of hours um, of the police who stopped work, uh, so there were 180 that stopped work, 69 were dismissed from the force, the rest were allowed back on duty after having apologised for their conduct. Uh, but as a result of that, it does have to be said, they did gain improvements in paying conditions, but they didn't at any point form a trade union. Okay, so that's a little bit of the background to the Metropolitan Police here. Now I just want to... Uh, go off at a little bit of a tangent and tell you about um, two men. Two, I'm going to call them men. I was going to call them gentlemen. No, they weren't. Um, Harry Benson and William Kerr. Now, there we are. There, there's there's a, 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 <laughs> a sketch that appeared in a newspaper of Harry Benson. Um, and he went under a number of aliases, um, all very grand-sounding names. Uh, he went under one alias, which was George Washington Motton. Um, 
Andrew Montgomery, Henry Young, but with an E on the end of the Young, Montague Costa, uh, and uh, Montague Posno. All of those were his aliases. Uh, and the other person I want to mention is a man called William Kerr. Uh, that is spelt K-U-R-R, though often it was spelt K-E-R-R. You know what the Victorians were like for spelling. Um, and he was a little bit less imaginative because he only had one other name, uh, and that was William Gifford. Okay, well, let me tell you a little bit about them. Uh, in the end, both Benson and Kerr became notorious enough, according to Punch of the 1st of December 1877, uh, that their wax figures appeared in Madame Tussauds' Chamber of Horrors. Well, let me tell you why their waxworks appeared in Madame Tussauds. Now, the fraudster and trickster Benson... Harry Benson was born in 1842. He was the son of a well-to-do Jewish merchant with offices in Paris. Uh, he'd been arrested several times and was imprisoned uh, in 1872 for forgery. Uh, and I looked this up, and uh, it was for obtaining by false pretenses £1,000. That was a lot of money. So obtaining by false pretenses £1,000 from Thomas Dakin, I don't know who Thomas Dakin was. And during his incarceration, he tried to commit suicide by setting fire to his clothes, but instead ended up lame and he could barely walk when he was released from prison. Why he turned to a life of crime actually does seem to be a little bit of a mystery. He came from a sort of relatively wealthy background. He appeared to have everything going for him, but he could have easily avoided a life of perpetual wrongdoing. Now, there, there was a bit of a, I think comic is probably no better word for it, um, Ali Slopper's Half Holiday, very, very popular in late Victorian times. And it made lots of comments uh, about this man. I, I've written here that it's a British comic strip magazine. Uh, and on the 14th of December, 1889, it described Benson as a well-educated, accomplished man of engaging manners who lived a life of luxury, keeping carriages, entertaining company, lecturing and editing magazines before his apprehension. So a lot, lot going for this guy. Uh, and on his release, he had means enough to have lived on comfortably, for he was well-connected. So he's done his time, but why he continued with a life of crime. Ali Slopper sort of really questioned that. Um, but what she said was, well it wasn't really a she, it was a he, but anyway, uh, to uh, act on the square, meaning in order to go straight with Harry Benson was just an impossibility. He just couldn't <laughs> live a, 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 a law-abiding life. Anyway, Benson was released from prison in 1876. He then went to live on the Isle of Wight. Bit of a crossover here with uh, the talk that you didn't get tonight because Michael Magrick uh, ended his years on the Isle of Wight. Anyway, Harry Benson, when he was released from prison for this uh, quite serious uh, forgery here, uh, went to live on the Isle of Wight. And there he advertised himself as being available uh, to take on a secretarial position. 
mentioning that he spoke several languages. If you remember, his, his father had offices in Paris. He was certainly bilingual, if not more than that. And, and that's quite significant uh, in this story. Now, the person who av uh, answered that advertisement was... William Kerr, as I've just mentioned to you uh, already, and there's a sketch of William Kerr. Uh, Kerr himself had been successful in various scams. He was a scammer. We think scamming is something new. I, I should imagine all of us this week has, have, have received an attempt to scam us. I cannot tell you how many ninja air fryers I have won this week or how many parcels haven't been delivered to my house. But if I pay a small amount of money, they will deliver that parcel. You know, it happens all the time. Well, actually, it was going on in the 19th century as well. Anyway, Kerr was a scammer. That's what he did. Uh, and he had all the qualities that made him actually a very good con man. He had great insight into people. He had a very amiable manner. He was a very nice bloke, superficially, of course. Um, he had good looks, as you can see there. Um, and he had great knowledge of matters relating to horse racing. And that's going to become significant a little bit later on. So anyway... Strangely, an advert is placed by a rogue who responds to that advert, another rogue. And they hatch a plot. Uh, and as well as all the attributes that I've just mentioned, uh, William Kerr was on very good terms with a detective at Scotland Yard, a one Sergeant John Micklejohn. Not quite sure what his parents were thinking when they named him John, but anyway, John Micklejohn uh, was a good friend of William Kerr. Um, and John Micklejohn had accepted money from Kerr not to pursue investigations into some of his earlier scams. At that time, Kerr was perpetrating a scam under the name of Gardner & Co. of Edinburgh. But I'll, I'll come on to the scamming a little bit later on. In fact, it was the ingenious Benson who put forward what he thought was a better and less risky way of making a lot of money. And members of the French aristocracy were going to be their targeted victims. So Kerr and Benson's turf fraud involved, it was quite, it was quite complicated, so bear with me. Um, it involved establishing a newspaper called Le Sport, not a very imaginative title, but that's what they called it, Le Sport, which contained articles about horse racing, which had been translated from British newspapers. So this is where Benson's skill, his bilingual skills, came into play here. It was supposedly printed weekly. It wasn't, but it was supposedly printed weekly. And it was sent to targeted victims in France, uh, names and contact details supplied by Benson, who worked his way through various French directories. Uh, there was only ever one copy of this newspaper made, uh, and though it was numbered 1,713, uh, and it was printed in Edinburgh. Edinburgh seemed to be a little bit of a sort of a, 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 a hub of where some of this scamming was going on. Now, readers of the paper found recommendations to seek out a betting man known as Mr. Montgomery. Remember? Yeah, Mr. Montgomery. Uh, because he was described as 
having infallible sagacity. Okay, he was described as being extremely wise. Uh, he was also cited as someone who was certain to win on the horses and could therefore help betters realise large fortunes. So this Mr. Montgomery, they said, he can make you a lot of money. There was just one problem, this magazine said. Uh, Montgomery was so well known for winning in England, he couldn't get good odds. No bookie would take his, his, his bets because he was always winning. So what he wanted to do, the magazine said, was to meet people in France who could place his bets under their name. And when he and they won they would receive a 5% commission. So that's all they had to do was to place his bet on the GGs. When it won, he'd send them back 5%. So anyway, anyone interested in joining this scheme would receive a cheque from Mr Montgomery drawn on the Bank of London. There was no such bank, okay? But this imaginary Bank of London, victims would deposit the, the cheque and then send legitimate cheques to their bank uh, from their banks to the bookmaker, who was another member of the gang. Are you still with me? Not really. No. Uh, making sure that their bet uh, on the horse that Montgomery recommended. So the bet had to go on Mr. Montgomery's horse, and guess what? The horse would win. Of course it would. And a day or so later, the bookmaker would send another imaginary cheque from the Bank of London back to the victim with their 5%. When they then went to cash that cheque, they would then realise that they'd been scammed. Okay. Now, among Kerr and Benson's victims was this lady here, the Countess de Goncourt. Okay, she was a member of the French aristocracy, and she was actually to be their downfall. For once the French woman saw how easy it would be to make money, she added £10,000 of her own funds to send to the bookmaker. Okay, so not only did she send Mr. Montgomery's money, but she also sent £10,000 of her own money. Well, this horse was going to win, wasn't it? And she wanted it placed, obviously, on Mr. Montgomery's horse. When Benson and Kerr saw what she'd done, the pound cerns appeared in their eyes. I mean, they were going for a good scam, but this scam was now just going to get better and better. And so what they then did was they attempted to defraud her of even more money. And they sent her this note. Well, you can see it under there. Uh, and uh, by English law, unless you forward £30,000 to back up the first investment, the £10,000 already deposited will be forfeited. So I'm going to ask you a question here. First of all, £10,000 in the 1870s, what do you think that's in today's money? Got half a million here? A million there? Million? We're going for a million. Okay, two million. No, no, right. 1.24 million. Okay. So she's already sent 1.24 million. And they are asking, sorry, yeah, she's already sent 10,000, which is 1.24 million. 
And they're saying that she's got to send another 30,000, which is three times 1.24, which is 3.72 million. We did say maths was my subject, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed that bit, as you can probably imagine. So she's being sent a lot of money and being told to send even more. Uh, to avoid losing her £10,000, she consulted her solicitor, uh, Mr Abrahams. I should imagine he just fainted, don't you? He just sort of fell on the floor. And she asked him to help her raise the funds she needed, the, the further £30,000. Uh, he, of course, realised what this was. He realised that this was what was called then a turf scam. Uh, and he went to Scotland Yard for help. Now, unbeknownst to Scotland Yard authorities, Micklejohn, who was now an inspector, and some other detectives were on the payroll of Kerr and Benson. Therefore, the same day that Micklejohn learned about the investigation into Kerr and Benson, he then notified them. He told them that warrants had been issued for them, and when officers went to arrest them, the two swindlers had already disappeared. Now, sometime before this, uh, a, a, another police officer, a chief inspector, Chief Inspector Nathaniel Druskovic, uh, told Micklejohn that he had some financial difficulties. And John Micklejohn said that he knew a businessman who could help him. That businessman was Harry Benson. And all he asked for in return of just a £60 loan, that's all Druskovich wanted, he wanted a £60 loan, was any prior warning if the Yard intended to arrest him. The loan appears to have been related to Nathaniel uh, Druskovich's brother, a man called John Vincent, who was arrested in August 77, charged with conspiracy to defraud, but he was later discharged. Uh, the feeling was that he wanted the money to pay for his legal representation. So the plot had now thickened, and therefore it proved extremely difficult to arrest Benson and Kerr. They always seemed to be one step, step ahead of the law. Not surprising, really, because the law was tipping them off. Moreover, uh, newspapers continually reported about how the swindlers always seemed to know what Scotland Yard was doing and how easily they were able to avoid capture. I don't think the newspapers actually wanted to spell it out, but the implication was there that they knew what was going on. But despite help from Micklejohn, Druskovich and other Scotland Yard detectives, Kerr and Benson were eventually apprehended. Kerr was arrested in Islington, but Benson had got as far as Rotterdam before he was arrested. They were sent to trial at the Old Bailey in April 1877 and both were found guilty. Benson was sentenced to 15 years and Kerr to 10 years, penal servitude, of course. Other bit part players in this scam uh, were also found guilty and were also sentenced. And one was a man called Charles, Charles Collings. Um, and I actually think he was uh, a Kerr's brother. I'm doing a bit of research on that, but I'm sure that was his brother. He got 10 years. A man called Charles Bales also got 10 years. And uh, more of a bit part player, Edwin Murray, uh, got 18 months. Okay. And there we are from the Illustrated London News there. Uh, that was actually at the Bow Street Magistrates Court. And you can see there William Kerr in the dock. Okay. So... 
Benson and Kerr, the masterminds behind this, uh, this scam, they have been sent to prison. They both arrive at Millbank Prison. And as soon as they got there, the very day that they got there, they asked if they could see the governor. Uh, the governor granted them an interview and they then sang like canaries, telling the story of the corrupt detectives. Okay, If they were going to go down, so were these detectives going to go down as well. So a new investigation was now started and the investigation was looking at John Micklejohn. Scotland Yard soon learned that he and other officers within the department were corrupt, taking bribes and aiding criminals. That then resulted in various arrests that included John Micklejohn, a solicitor named Edward Froggart, and three other Scotland Yard officers, and Nathaniel Druskovich, I've already mentioned, William Palmer, uh, and George Clark. And George Clark was actually in the second in command in the detective department. All of them were arrested. When this story broke in the press, it was absolutely huge. It was even bigger news than what had happened to Kerr and Benson. I think the public found the Kerr and Benson story mildly amusing, to be honest. Um, these were two con men, um, but they were con conning phenomenally rich people. Not only that, they were foreigners as well. So the great British public actually just thought it was all mildly amusing, I think. However, when this story broke, this was something completely different. And it was known in the press as the trial of the detectives or the turf fraud scandal. The public did not want to believe that detectives at Scotland Yard could be working with criminals. Uh, and if it was true and Scotland Yard detectives were found guilty, many feared it would permanently shake people's confidence in an organisation that was supposed to administer justice and maintain the well-being of British society. And I think perhaps all of us have felt a bit like that over the post office scandal. Um, I, I, certainly I felt very shaken by it. You know, the post office, um, you know, a part of our our establishment, a part of our society, um, when so much had gone on for so long and so many people had suffered. And, and, and I think this was having a similar effect uh, in, in 19th century uh, Britain. However, prosecutors were on track to do precisely that, uh, and they would prove successful in their quest, partly because of the evidence that was given them at the trial by Kerr and Benson, of course. They, they were the main um, witnesses for the prosecution. All five men, that's Micklejohn, Druskovich, Palmer, Clark and Froggart, were charged with unlawfully conspiring with Kerr, Benson and others. And it was claimed that they had tried to obstruct, defeat and pervert the due course of public justice. These, these were serious charges here. The trial of the detectives was held at the Old Bailey and it began on Thursday the 25th of October 1877 and it lasted 19 days ending on Monday the 19th of October 1877 and um, there we are, there are the main protagonists there. Um, that was from the actually the Penny Illustrated News, that one. Okay. Now during the trial... 
Kerr testified that John Micklejohn had been assisting him in his criminal activities since 1873. So it wasn't just this particular scam. It had been going on for a long time. He stated that when he and Benson joined forces, they realised they needed greater backing from other high-ranking detectives to avoid detection, that John Micklejohn alone, in a sense, wasn't enough. Therefore, to succeed in their schemes, they began to test the integrity of Micklejohn's fellow Scotland Yard officers, and some of them did prove to be corruptible. Stories about Scotland Yard detectives being corrupt quickly, as I say, captured the headlines, and the trial of the detectives became absolutely the sensation of the year. Readers of newspapers just could not get enough of this. Uh, and newspapers were willing to provide every salacious detail. Every little detail of this was described in newspapers. If you belong to the British newspaper archive, just Google the trial of the detectives and, and, and have a, not Google, you know, search on the trial of the detectives and, and you'll, you'll see what I mean. Um, these tales fascinated the British public and they were constantly predicting, the newspapers were constantly predicting what they thought the outcome for the individuals involved would be. Moreover, the courtroom was packed with spectators every day and then until the last day of the trial, newspapers reported that the courtroom was thronged absolutely thronged and I just want to read you what the Daily Telegraph reporter said on the 24th of November uh, 1877 um, I mean th this is the sort of level of detail that they were going into and by now we're towards the end of the trial it says the summing up was anything but interesting even to the judicial mind the evidence was wearisome from repetition and the judge's system necessitated constant allusion to the same circumstances. They're saying, this summing up is phenomenally boring. However, there were, there were the prisoners exposed to the public gaze and subjected to determined scrutiny. Everybody was looking at the prisoners. Whenever Druskovich stood up, whenever Froggart sat down, whenever Clark leaned on his elbow, whenever Mickledon scrunched up her pen in his strong fingers, whenever a note was passed down from the dock to the barristers or solicitors, each one of these facts was duly recorded and whispered about by the unprofessional spectators in court. But as the lengthy list of, list of witnesses was wearily exhausted, on one face only was seen a sign of expectancy or a ray of hope, and that was on the face of Inspector Clark. Anxiety seemed to fade from him as the end drew near. Micklejohn never stood for a second. His features never relaxed their gloom. Druskovich and Froggart were nervously anxious and apprehensively fidgety, were often whispering and constantly writing during the early morning hours, but Clark's face was comparatively cheerful and illuminated with hope. Without much solemnity and with scarcely any deviation from an even and unruffled course, the jury retired to consider their verdict at 25 minutes past three. That was the level of interest and detail that the newspapers went into. Anyway, the jury retired at 25 past three. Now, the deliberation must have been very short because at 17 minutes past four, the jury returned and Micklejohn, Froggart, Palmer and Druskovich were found guilty.
the judge sentenced each to two years hard labor. I don't know what your feeling is about the length of that sentence, but he uh, sentenced them each to two years hard labor. Uh, and this was despite the jury having strongly recommended that Palmer and Druskovich receive mercy because of their long police service. I don't get the logic of that. I would have thought that because they were long-standing police, long police officers that, in fact, their betrayal was even greater. But anyway, the judge took no notice of that and served them all two years. Uh, as for Clark, um, uh, even though the jury found him not guilty, so he, his looks of expectation were probably justified, he was found not guilty. Uh, but what actually happened, this scandal ended his career in the police uh, and he subse subsequently retired on a full pension. So it wasn't so bad, was it? The trial of the detectives also had serious, as you can imagine, implications for Scotland Yard. It challenged the superintendent's ability to supervise his subordinates. It also showed that even the most respected authorities could behave with criminal intent and better checks were needed in place to prevent the behaviour that had happened with Michael John Palmer and Druskovich. So thus, the trial of the detectives ultimately resulted in the detective branch of Scotland Yard being reorganised into what we now know today as the CID, the Criminal Investigation Department, hence my reference to the date of 1878. And that was the reason, the trial of these really very corrupt police officers. So all of what I've just told you really is in the public domain. There is a very good book. Um, and I can't remember who wrote it, but uh, there is a very good book. If you Google Trial of the Detectives, uh, you'll find it. But what always intrigues me with stories like this is what happened to those individuals next? You know, Benson, Kerr, the detectives, what happened next? So that's what I want to move on to. Um, so I'm going to start with Benson and Kerr. So I had a look at them in the uh, 1881 census. Um, William Kerr was aboard a convict ship docked in Gillingham. If you remember, the trial was in 1877. Um, he got 10 years, so in the 1871, he is still a prisoner, and he's on a convict ship that is docked in Gillingham. And Harry Benson uh, was in a prison in Portsmouth. Um, oh, sorry, there, there's a picture there of the trial at the Old Bailey. Okay, so that's where they were in the 1881 uh, census. Now, William Benson, I mean, sorry, Harry Benson, he's quite a character here, and I have to say he did his level best to get out of prison. And I just want to show you some newspaper clippings here. So uh, this one here um, from uh, the 12th of February, 1881, uh, just be having a look at that. If I tell you both men served one-third off their sentence for good behaviour and upon release uh, went to the US and set themselves up as mining company promoters. But prior to that, let's just follow the story here of Harry Benson. So in February 1881, uh, the application of the convict Benson for a mitigation of his sentence in consideration of services rendered in giving evidence against the detective Micklejohn and others having been refused, he has now 
applied for release on the grounds of ill health. So basically, he said, look, I helped you convict these corrupt police officers. Um, you know, why don't you let me out of prison? Um, and that was refused. So he is now um, applying for release on the grounds of ill health. Okay, uh, June 1881, the convict Benson, notorious for his connection with the turf frauds and his evidence against the detective inspectors, has been for nearly two years in the infirmary of the convict ship, uh, in convict prison, Portsmouth. Two years in the infirmary. Uh, applications for his discharge or the partial remission of his sentence have been refused on more than one occasion, and now he has been declared what is known as a malingerer. Uh, he has managed hitherto very adroitly to deceive the medical officers, me medical officers but on his cell uh, being recently entered unexpectedly, something was seen which resulted the prison commissioners placing Benson under observation and a medical board, partially composed of civilian do doctors, have examined him and unanimously declared that there is nothing the matter with him. So what they found in his cell... I don't know. I just wish I did know. But anyway, they said there's absolutely nothing wrong with him. Uh, such report has been forwarded to the Home Office and Benson, having heard of it, has applied for his removal. If this takes place, he will probably go to Portland, as Dartmoor is in the neighbourhood of where he had a farm and Parkhurst in the Isle of Wight is adjacent to the scene of his notorious exploits. So having been found out by the, uh, the, the uh, prison commissioners um, in the prison where he is currently serving his sentence, he's been asked, he asks to be moved for, to another prison. So that was in June 1881. Uh, and then in December 1881, again, the headline is the convict Benson. It is stated that the convict Benson has just petitioned the Home Secretary for the fourth time for some re remission of his sentence in consideration of his services and exposing the detectives. Well, he's already tried that one already, but he adds this time on condition of his leaving England. So he said, look, I, you know, come on. If I promise to leave the country, um, then will you let me out? Um, and the answer to all of that was no. Um, and there we are, release of Benson. It happened in October 1885. Um, the convict Benson, sentenced for the turf frauds, was released from Millbank Prison this morning. So he did his best to try and get out, but he didn't. And as I said, uh, both men received a third of their sentence for good behaviour. Uh, and when they were released, they went out to the United States and they set themselves up as mining company promoters. <laughs> you know what's coming now, don't you? Uh, Benson then went to Belgium and sold stock in non-existent mines. The Belgian authorities caught up with him. He was sentenced to two years in prison. And upon his release, he went to Switzerland following another elaborate scam which involved marrying a young girl and then trying to swindle her father. He had headed back to the US and there he perpetrated another scam. He can't help himself, this guy. Perpetrated another scam involving a, sing a singer called Adelina Patti. Might have heard of her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, she was a very, very successful and totally innocent uh, singer. Uh, and what he was doing was selling bogus tickets to her concerts to unsuspecting Mexicans. Uh, 
Uh, and then on returning to the States, he was arrested, thrown into jail. In jail, he uh, leapt from a high gallery, uh, broke his spine, and he died aged 40. I mean, you couldn't make it up, really, could you? But that apparently is the story of Harry Benson. Um, William Kerr, I can find nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, so just watch this space. If I find anything, obviously, I'll let you know. So that, that's, that's what the, the swindlers, what happened to the swindlers. Harry Benson, loads and loads of scams, jumps off a balcony, breaks his mind, dies, age 40. William Kerr, I know nothing. Right, then, this entry in the Dundee Courier of 1880, um, I found... Um, oh, not that one. Don't want you seeing that one yet. Right, this was an entry I found in the Dundee Courier of 1880. Okay, it said, the released London detectives, you remember, they got two years. It says, the detectives concerned in the great uh, turf fraud case were released from prison in October last. So that was towards the end of 1880. The gossip stated that Druskovich had been offered and had accepted a lucrative appointment as a detective abroad and that Micklejohn's friends in Scotland intended to set him up in some business in that country. As a matter of fact, both have returned to their own calling, having started private inquiry offices on the south side of the Thames and not very far from each other. The late Late Chief Inspector Druskovich, being an accomplished linguist, he is said to be able to speak seven languages, goes in for foreign inquiries as a speciality. Micklejohn, in his card, refers to his 10 years' experience as an inspector at Scotland Yard and is willing to undertake inquiries of every description in the, on the most reasonable terms. So I found that, uh, that entry in the Dundee Courier. I wondered if there was any truth in any of that. And indeed, I found that advertisement in the London Evening Standard, 21st of February, 1885. And it, what's been good about this is, of course, the name Micklejohn is not a common one. So when you search for Micklejohn, you know, it, 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 it's really pretty good. So Micklejohn's private inquiry agency, I ask myself, is that our John Micklejohn? Uh, 20 York buildings, Adelphi WC. Uh, Mr. M, brackets, late inspector of detective police, Great Scotland Yard, so he's not hiding the fact, <laughs> um, uh, undertakes inquiries in divorce and all confidential matters. So indeed, on his release from prison, he sent himself up as a private inquiry agent. Um, have a look at this one. Okay, and this was in the London Evening Standard in January 1881, a little bit earlier. Druskovich's private inquiry office, brackets British and foreign, conducted by Mr. N. Druskovich, late chief inspector of Great Scotland Yard Detective Office at 64 South Lambeth Road, SW, near Vauxhall Station. So indeed, both met, set themselves up as private inquiry agents. Um, Micklejohn, however, he lived a very full and eventful life after he was released from prison. I'll come on to Druskovich later, but he lived a very full life. Uh, as well as his inquiry agency, he took to the pen and he published several books. Uh, life in London was published in 1890. Okay, 
There's a picture of it. I don't have a copy of that book. Does anybody have a copy of that book? No, no, I would buy it off you if you did. Anyway, um, yep, so he, he, he wrote a book called Life in London. And in that book, he mentions many of the cases he investigated, but strangely is significantly quiet about the 1877 uh, events. Uh, and then there was another book... Um, no, I'll come on to that one. Uh, there was another book called Real Life Detective Stories that he published, or he wrote, and then it was published shortly after his death in 1912. But it's 1903 I want to tell you about. Um, in 1898, Major Arthur Griffiths, does that ring any bells? With, with Yeah, uh, yes, absolutely. I'm sure many of you have got his book. So Major Arthur Griffiths, who was a well-respected prison governor, published a book in three volumes called uh, Mysteries of Police and Crime. I happen to have all three volumes. Um, and in volume one, Pages 334 to 300, sorry, 434 to 444. If you go to those, that book, they are devoted to the turf frauds and the trial of the detectives. Uh, not unreasonably, uh, John Micklejohn's involvement is described in full. Uh, and in November 1903, Micklejohn sued. Major Griffiths and the publisher for libel. Okay, so the book came out in 1898, but it wasn't until 1903, five years later, that Micklejohn decided to sue. Now, the prosecution argument held that the gist of the chapter, and I've read it several times, and this is true, the gist of the chapter was that Micklejohn had been bought by Benson and then conspired with other officers to shield criminals and, and assist them in disposing of their booty. That's basically what it says. And in doing this, this is what the prosecution claimed, in doing this, it revived all the shame of the past and it was a shocking thing, they said, that a man like the plaintiff who had earned his pardon, no, he hadn't. He wasn't pardoned. He did his time. That's not the same as being pardoned. Anyway, it was a shocking thing that a man like the plaintiff who had earned his pardon by suffering punishment was to be pilloried after 25 years as a criminal. <laughs> Doesn't matter about the passage of time, mate. You were a criminal. The defence entered a plea of justification and were then asked by the judge to justify that plea. So Mr. Duke, the uh, defence uh, barrister, then absolutely went to town and justified he did. The jury then they considered their verdict without even leaving the jury box. They just looked up and down and went, OK, didn't even lose, leave the jury box. Judgment was awarded in favour of Major Griffiths and he was also awarded costs. Interestingly, John Micklejohn didn't even return to the court to hear the outcome. In the 1911 census, John Micklejohn is living at 40 Pencehurst Road in South Hackney, and there he died in February 1912. And it was interesting looking at the obituaries for John Micklejohn. Okay, um, this one. Reynolds News, 10th of March, uh, 1912. 
Reynolds News was an interesting newspaper, I thought, after I'd finished this. Anyway, it said the following, and this was actually a, a, an advertisement, actually, for the book that was published posthumously. The following reminiscences are from the pen of ex-detective inspector John Micklejohn, who at the time of his death, which occurred the other day in South Hackney, was preparing the story of his eventful life for publication. Well, I think we can safely say it was eventful. In the opinion of competent judges, Micklejohn was the greatest detective of his day and his reminiscences, uh, reminiscences of notable crimes in the solution of which he was engaged will show the reader something of that natural capacity for police work which he displayed from the outset of his career as a constable in the Metropolitan Police Force, something of that initiative that brought him to the notice of his superiors. Well, eventually he was brought to the notice of his superiors, wasn't he? And something of that wide knowledge of the devious ways of the predatory classes essential to all detectives. That glows in the dark. It says, what a wonderful, wonderful man he was. And he's just written this book, which is about to be published, and sadly, has, he has died. That was the opinion of Reynolds' news on the death of John Micklejohn. Um, slightly different, the London Daily News uh, a few days before, and it said, one of the most sensational trials of the last centuries recalled by the death in South Hackney of Mr. John Micklejohn, formerly a detective inspector at Scotland Yard. They went on to say, together with four other detective inspectors in the Metropolitan Police and a solicitor, Micklejohn was charged with conspiracy to defeat the ends of justice in aiding Benson and his fellow criminals in perpetrating what was known as the Great Turf Frauds. At the time of his arrest in 1877, Micklejohn was a police inspector on the Midland Railway in Derby and had, according to the evidence given at the trial, been in league with the two men named Kerr and Benson in perpetrating frauds on the public. Okay. The London Daily News did not hesitate to remind the public of this man's real criminal past. Anyway, if I go back now to Reynolds News, they didn't lay up. Um, this is the 26th of April, uh, 1914, and this was an advertisement for the posthumous publication of Mickle John's book. And they say... Oh, they, they absolutely wax lyrical about this. They say, in this book, the celebrated detective gives a remarkable series of revelations that explains some of the most baffling mysteries, mysteries in modern times. The stories are full of excitement and will crawl, recall many crimes the reader has long forgotten. But the part played in bringing the criminals to justice made the name of Detective Micklejohn famous. Not a word! Not a word about what happened in 1877. As I say, I do have my doubts about uh, Reynolds News. My uncle used to work for Reynolds News, but anyway, that's, <laughs> that's irrelevant. Okay, right. So the last person I wanted to talk about was uh, Nathaniel Druskovich, if you remember him. He, he was also uh, in, in league with, with uh, John Micklejohn. Um, and, and I have just... As, as, as you probably imagine, I, I, I dislike intensely John Micklejohn. I think he, 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 he was dishonest, he was a crook, he was undermining really British society, the very person almost at the top of his game who should have been protecting us 
actually wasn't. Um, and on his release from prison, did it humble him? No, it didn't. Not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. I, I would imagine a phenomenally arrogant man. Nathaniel Druskovich, I do have a modicum of sympathy for. Not a lot, okay, because he was just as bad, but I do have some sympathy for him. While he was awaiting trial in 1877, he did attempt suicide. And then after his release from prison in 1879, he did indeed, as I've already said, set himself up as a private detective, but it was actually very short-lived. In the 1881 census, Druskovich was living at 64 South Lambert Road with his wife, Elvina, but on the 29th of December, only a few months after that census in 1881, which was just two years and two months after he left prison, he died of TB. Uh, many speculating that he'd actually caught it while he was in prison and he died at the death of 39 years old. So I do have just yeah, a little, I, I, I think he regretted his actions uh, enormously. So there we have it, ladies and gentlemen, the trial of the detectives. Thank you. Terrific. Okay, so what we'll do, as we normally do, is we'll take a quick break here. It's uh, just gone eight o'clock. So can we come back by quarter past eight, and then we'll take time for questions. Okay, so see you in, ten, see you in 15 minutes. The bar's that way. Well, uh, welcome back, suitably refreshed. And it's at this point where I can ask if you have any questions. Now, we are recording this, and it will be part of the Rippercast podcast. So if you do have a question, please just indicate that you've got a question, and I'll come down with you with a microphone. Otherwise, we won't be able to hear you on, online. So if you have a question, please uh, put your hand up. Um, I've just got, while we're waiting, I have got one. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned uh, in the introduction that you, there was about, what, 150 police? Was, how many police officers were caught drunk and disorderly? 215. Was this a dismissible offence then, Sue, to be drunk on duty? Yes, it would. It would. They'd have, have been drunk. And just on that, when these police officers came out of prison, would that debar them from rejoining the police force? With bad reputations, police officers who've retired with bad reputations uh, can rejoin the force. And this was the case with, I don't know if you remember, several years ago, this elderly news uh, seller was caught with this process, uh, a demonstration in what they call kettling, in which they restrict people who were... Uh, and the, the, the poor old guy was just going about his business and trying to get home. And one of the police officers roughed him up so badly that he died. And um, it turns out that this officer had a very bad reputation for this. He'd left the police force, but then decided he wanted to come back. And despite his record, they'd accepted him back. So, I mean, it's, the, the police have been making rods for their own back for some time. In my dad's day, once you were once you were gone, if you had a bad, if you were in prison or anything like that, you were out. And uh, your wives had to be vetted as well. In the police force, in my dad's day, you had to be whiter than white. Hi there. Um, yeah, thanks for a brilliant talk. Thank um, you. Can be greedy two questions. Um, first one, did the French countess get her money back <laughs> and second question was there something fishy about I think it was George 
Clark, the the officer who got acquitted and is very confident. Yes, what, yes. What's your opinion on that? Sure, absolutely. Thank yes, you. yes. So going back to uh, uh, Madame de Goncourt, did she get her money back? I'm always asked that question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I suspect she didn't, but in fact, um, I, I met up with Paul Begg the other day, and coincidentally, we were talking about the trial of the detectives, um, and he said, you know, whatever happened to Madame de Goncourt? And I said, I've asked myself the same question, so I don't know. Yeah, did she, de she did deserve to get her money back, but it, it's hard to, to, to have... A great deal of sympathy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, sorry. And oh, and the second one, yes, the, the George Clark. Yes, I th I think, I mean, the, the the trial is phenomenally long, and as the Daily Telegraph said, it is phenomenally boring as well. And I think his was a not guilty because there was just lack of evidence, and they, the, the the detectives didn't snitch on each other. Possibly if they did, then, then George Clark would have been found guilty. But the, it, it, there was a lack of evidence as far as he was concerned. But as I say, it ended his police career, but it didn't affect his pension. And he was fast approaching pensionable age, so did it affect the rest of his life? Probably not, no. Great, thanks for those questions. Any, are there any more questions? I do have one. Yes, Bill. Yeah, just a couple of comments, actually. Um, one is uh, that the newspapers um, in the 19th century and early 20th century, I mean, I do, I've done a lot of research uh, into uh, things like miscarriages of justice and stuff like that. And the newspapers in those days, the, the, their accounts of the trials are virtually... Yeah trial transcripts they are absolutely yeah. yes uh, it, yes it's a wonderful service to the public mm. which mm. you simply do not get today because no. all you get today is some uh, sensationalist headline and a couple of columns sure. uh, about sure. it that's it sure. uh, you yeah. don't get the you don't get a, a, a proper account of any trial sure. uh, these days the other is the um, uh, the length of time that juries uh, took to um, uh, to convict or acquit, and that is that uh, you notice in these old trials that they're very rarely out for much longer than about half an hour at most. About it, it normally uh, ten to thirty minutes. Nowadays, of course, it can it, it, they're much much longer. Sure. But in those days, verdicts were very um, sure. turned over very quickly. Yeah, yeah. I did jury service quite a few years mm. ago um, and we were out I would say for about three and a half hours mm. yeah As, have, have others done jury service I bet yeah how long were you out for about three and a half hours any others yeah, no, yeah. about that yeah um, I was going to ask Sue the police officers were obviously two years hard labour do we know what life was like for them in prison as police officers? Were they treated any differently? Was there any 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 um, unfavourable behaviour from fellow fellow prisoners? I don't know for certain, but I, I suspect you're probably <laughs> right. Yes, <laughs> I suspect there was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, certainly the conditions were very unhealthy, uh, and, and the feeling that uh, Druskovic had contracted TB in yeah. prison was was. was yeah. Probably correct, mm. yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Damp and overcrowded. Yeah. Because and he was in Westminster Prison, wasn't he? What was it? Um, Let me get them right. Oh, was I right? Yeah, Where, yeah. What prison they both went to Millbank, Millbank to start with. That's the one. Yeah, Millbank. yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, that was there. notoriously yeah. uh, unhealthy. In that star-shaped block, which no longer exists. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we have another question. Great. Apart from Madame, whatever her name is, De Goncourt, <laughs> yes, that, that, that lady, did they make much money from their scam in France from other people? Yes, that, oh. that, that, that's a good question. And what did they do with the money? Yes, <laughs> yes, what did they do with the money? To be honest, I don't know what they did with the money. Did they scam anybody else? Almost certainly, yes, but as today, those that were scammed felt pretty stupid. And there was a sort of a lot of shame that was, went with it. And to come forward and say that, you know, this has happened to you. People were often very reluctant to do that. And I think that's true nowadays as well, that there's, there's a degree of shame in it. So, yes, they certainly scammed others. Um, but they were reluctant to come forward. And it was Madame de Goncourt uh, going to her solicitor to say, can you help me get another... Uh, thirty thousand pounds that just it you know, it just imploded and in fact if they hadn't have been greedy and asked her for extra chances are they wouldn't have been found out well certainly not then well what a great story what an amazing story and what amazingly well told sue thank you so much for stepping in today yeah. it's been really really good everybody sue thank parry you. thank you, thank you. <laughs>